The New Statesman podcast is sponsored by High Speed One. Demand for sustainable travel is increasing, and at High Speed One, we believe that high speed rail is the future of international journeys. A recent study shows over a third of Londoners are expecting to travel more by train in the next five years. To meet this increasing demand, High Speed One has ambitious plans to grow by offering more services and destinations, as well as preparing St Pancras International Station for growth. Find out more about the Green Gateway to Europe at highspeed1.co.uk. That's the words high speed and the number one.co. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a world review from the New Statesman special episode. I'm Jeremy Cliff, our international editor, and I'm really pleased to be joined by Mark Damazer, the former director of Radio 4 on the BBC, former master of St Peter's College in Oxford, and coming to us from Italy. Mark, thank you for joining for us. It's a great pleasure, Jeremy. Actually, we're going to talk about your piece in the New Statesman's summer special issue But we were just talking before we got on air about your time in Italy, which also chimes with my trip from Berlin to Naples and back by train, which we cover in the same special issue. So I'd be very keen to hear kind of what is your sense of particularly coming from the UK? How does the British perception of Italy compare with the actual reality that you've seen there on the ground? Because for me, I felt there was a certain disparity. I have a theory, I think theory is probably an inflationary word for it, but I have an intuition that because COVID hit Italy first amongst the big European countries, it had some distorting impact, certainly on the coverage, but possibly also even some aspects of policy making. Italy having a reputation for being disorderly, anarchic, weak government, incompetent, and if a first world nation only by the skin of its teeth. So when we were all saturated with pictures from Lombardy and in Cordugno, the town that had the original lockdown in particular, I think we took it upon ourselves to believe that somehow or other that just couldn't happen with us and that whatever measures the Italians were doing to counteract COVID, surrounded by scenes of patients in hospital corridors and queuing up for ventilators and and doctors being intermingled, deciding who would live and who would die, We somehow rather thought that we shouldn't really copy whatever it is that the Italians were thinking and saying. Mm. That may very well have been a mistake because the Italian lockdown occurred pretty quickly and was pretty severe from the outset. And I don't think it takes too much hindsight to say that if we looked at Italy and decided that there was something that was going on there that was highly likely to happen in the UK, that we might have adopted different attitudes, if not necessarily different policy responses. No, I witnessed that myself in the sense of I was talking on the one hand to relatives in Italy who were telling me about the lockdown they had to go into and telling relatives in the UK, buy some things from the supermarket, you know, get some hand sanitizer, lock yourselves down. But my friends in Italy were telling me very early on, and these were people who were not at the epicentre, this was much more in the centre of the country around Umbria and Tuscany, the bits that British tourists tend to know best, 
that it was being taken with absolute seriousness from the outset. So although incidence around where I'm speaking to you from was very, very low, compliance was very, very high. The government, and we all know, you know a famously improbable government led by a man who nobody considered any kind of a political sage. You mean Giuseppe Conte, the, the prime minister? Conte and you know Salvini making all the normal noises offstage of the right-wing populist kind. And you know, the Cinque Stelle, you know, not exactly, uh, how can I put it, an experienced governmental partner in all of this, trying to sort it out with a health system which is not that well understood or known outside Italy, but is broadly functioning. And they must have got quite a bit right here because the incidence of coronavirus, never mind about the death rate, which is now into single figures on a normal day, but the, uh, this could change, I realise, and I touch wood as I say it. But the number of cases is way down below France, below Germany, obviously below Britain, clearly miles below Spain. I mean, there may be an eruption and one doesn't want to be complacent about it, but it would be as well to note that they've done it. And up to this point, after completely taken by surprise by it, who wouldn't be? They were the first major European country to suffer it. Yeah. They have not done as gracefully badly, in my view. No, it's, it's, it's very impressive and it cuts against, I think, the prevailing British perception of how Italy has coped with the crisis. Mark, could you talk to us a bit about your excellent piece in the New Statesman's summer special edition on your relationship with Germany? I mean, it really, you know, I I live in Berlin. I am very much settled in Germany. And I have to say that your piece really kind of helped me think through my own attitudes towards the country. First of all, tell us about your own personal family relationship with the country. Well, thank you for what you said about the piece. I mean, I grew up in a small suburban house in London, Jewish, not observing, but absolutely, completely, 100% Jewish. My father was a Pole, my mother was Swiss-German. They themselves grew up in Orthodox Jewish environments. And my father's family and my mother's family had been very badly scarred by the Holocaust. I mean, my father's family was more or less, not quite entirely, but more or less wiped out in the Warsaw Ghetto. My mother's grandparents, had a suicide pact shortly after Hitler came to power in 1933. My great-grandfather committed suicide. My great-grandmother narrowly failed. And I was brought up to believe that Germany was essentially a wicked power that had done massive harm to the world. My parents were too rational to assume that Hitler was still in power. And I didn't have that kind of neurosis inculcated into me. But unquestionably, Germany was a phenomenon to be very, very concerned about always because you never knew when they would go to the bad. Mm. I mean, that having been said, they were keen for me to learn German. They thought it was a useful and important language. And so I did. My father had really shattering nightmares. And the house was quite small with rather thin walls. And these nightmares, no more than three or four a year, but they were really, really terrible. He was a quiet and dignified man. And the nightmares were unbelievably loud and must have woken not only me and my brother, we shared a room next door, but I would also thought the neighbours. And I knew what they were about. I mean, they were obviously about the Holocaust and what had happened to his family. And so how did that set up your views of Germany? Well, on the one hand, I was learning German in a school which took that sort of teaching pretty seriously. And so I knew a little bit about German literature and German culture and German music and all of that. But all the time in the background, there was this fear. I mean, it wasn't spoken about on a daily or regular basis, but it was palpably obvious that my father couldn't bear the thought of going to Germany. He didn't really want me to have too much to do with Germany, except learning the language 
and a bit about the literature. I mean, I think he would have been very worried if I had ended up working for a German company or anything of that kind. They regarded anything that mitigated, as they saw it, German power as being likely to be good. And I remember my parents' great satisfaction when Willy Brandt, who they hugely admired, reached out and it is Ostpolitik shortly mm. after he became chancellor. Not, I think, because they thought, well, that's a tremendous thing for the world, but they thought that that was a tremendous thing because it meant that Germany was going to be permanently split in two, the purport of Willy Brandt's policy being to recognise de facto East Germany, and that therefore that meant that Germany couldn't come together again as one huge economic and political force in the middle of Europe. So, so, so for your parents, it was, it was fundamental that Germany remain divided? Preferably. I think that by now, I mean, this was all, of course, I mean, the best part well over 40 years ago, nearer 50. And they, I'm sure, might have changed their views as a result of changing circumstances. But at that point, of course, we were much nearer to the end of World War II than where we are to now. And at that point, despite Germany's huge progress and great success in the 50s and 60s and being a member of NATO and the European Union and having a liberal pluralist democracy, my parents always had a palpable anxiety about Germany. And I think I would suggest, my mother's still alive, age 90, my father, I think, might very well have adapted somewhat to what modern Germany now feels and looks like. Mm. But I think it would have been a struggle for him all the way through. And you write in your piece a bit about your visit on an exchange programme to the Goethe Gymnasium in Frankfurt. How yeah. did that go down with them? Well, they were extremely keen for me to do well academically at everything, because for them, education as immigrants, without any obvious money and without the currency of respectability or English heritage or anything of that kind, but they regarded education with the utmost seriousness. That's both an immigrant trait and a Jewish trait, I guess. And it was important to them that I did well at school. And so the fact that by going to Germany, I was likely to improve my German was very much on the plus side. My grandmother was relatively nearby in Zurich. But of course, the dilemma was how to find a family that could not have themselves been involved in Nazism, because the thought of living together with people who had been tied up uh, one way or another, even thinly with the Nazi project, would have figured my father... So how, how did you find a, a non-Nazi former couple in Frankfurt? I was very little involved in them. I mean, I was sort of, was I 13? I was between 12 and 13 and didn't know much about it, except, of course, I knew that they were very concerned about it and that I think it got as far as agreeing that if no such family could be found, I couldn't go. And I wouldn't have minded too much about that. I was extremely nervous about the whole thing. I'd obviously never been away for that period of time. I didn't go to a boarding school. Mm. But in some incredible way, the Goethe Gymnasium pitched up with family Nagler, and they would have had their own astonishing World War II experience of being married when they were 17. I think she must have become pregnant when she was 16. It's obviously miles before the pill. So the family was much, much younger. I mean, my, my mother was only sort of 25 when she had me, but I mean, Mrs. Nagler was much younger and the father was much, much younger. And doing a basic bit of maths, my parents instantly thought, well, that's going to be all right. And indeed, it really was. They were remarkable people. He was a chemical engineer nearby in Ludwigshafen. They weren't very well off, but they were very, very nice people, spoke some English and clearly had been appalled by Germany's past, which we spoke about from time to time, and we hit it off. 
And bring us up to date. I mean, how has that marked your perception of Germany? You know, since then, Germany has reunified. It's become a dominant player in Europe. Under Merkel, it's become almost a sort of progressive icon. How, How have you kind of experienced that change? Well, I think it does date back to 68, 69. I had a very, very good time at the Goethe Gymnasium. I do think that some of it was about going to a co-educational school at a point where I was just beginning to think that sort of thing mattered. And they were far more informal and relaxed. And it was at the time that Hey Jude came out. So I associated entirely with (laughs) all of that. There were loads and loads of daughters of American military servicemen and women, which therefore made a little bit of English language, Beatles worship, something that could be held in common. But I found living in another culture and going down to the bakery every morning and fetching the rolls and the steaming hot coffee and all of this was miles away from my experience in suburban northwest London. School was sort of almost around the corner as opposed to an hour trip in a school coach. There was no uniform. The whole thing in my memory, and I'm sure I'm being a little bit rose-tinted about it. No, 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 that remains a distinction. I mean, I'm, I'm always struck living in Germany myself at the way that German pupils go to school with absolutely no uniform, and they mostly come back after lunchtime, so it's quite a nice place yeah. to be a student. Yeah, and they don't appear to be badly educated either. So I had a pretty good time, both with the family and at the school, and had you know a tentative dalliance with two women aged 13, i.e. not a serious dalliance, but I remember it was my first ever serious crush. I mean, all of that helped, I think. But of course, you know, my main academic interests or, you know, A-levels were history, politics, British constitution, politics, economics, and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, I kept up with what was going on in Germany and became increasingly impressed and not merely by Billy Brandt. I mean, you could see it was happening very, very quickly. The extent to which Germany had changed into something which bore no resemblance, not merely to Nazism and fascism, but actually not much else either. I mean, it didn't feel like the Weimar Republic. Mm. It wasn't a sense in which every day was the last day and people were burning money and it was all hedonism, instability, you know, inflation, neurosis and all the rest of it. I mean, something pretty solidly constructed was appearing in front of one's eyes. And this was at a point where Britain was beginning to slow down. Britain having enjoyed something of a post-war boom, but clearly at a much slower rate than most of the main European economies. And So how do you see Germany today? Well, it's tempting to overdo this. And because you d- I don't live there, and I don't read you know, the Frankfurter Allgemeine or Die Zeit, and I'm not looking at ZDF bulletins, and I get what I get through the organs one gets it through, the New Statesman, the Economist, the BBC does very, very little as it does on all mainland European political economies, but you know, piecing yeah. it all together and reading a fair amount of German history, which has always fascinated me, and taking a very long and slightly synthetic view of it, and this is a little bit facile, but it's very, very hard not to say that the period since 1945, and perhaps particularly since 55, has been one of those rip-roaring successes of statescraft. And the German political economy stands out as being a mixture of economic success on a sustained basis, of political stability on a sustained basis, of cultural freedom on a sustained basis, of uh, pretty heavy doses of social liberalism on a sustained basis. Yeah. And things go wrong. It's a country of over 85 million people. And 
I too object to some of the decisions that Merkel and others may have made. I mean, who wouldn't? But in the round, and let's take a rounded view of it, it's very, very difficult, I think, to come to the conclusion that Germany isn't an amazingly successful political economy. Well, this is, this, is, this is very interesting to hear from you because this is quite personal for me. I've lived in Germany since the end of 2015, one way or another, and I've always experienced it as a place with a certain way of doing things that is very rooted in its own identity and in its own past, but that has a sort of it's achieved things that will be hard to imagine in the UK at the moment. Yes. I mean, and I don't say that with any glee. I mean, I no. have reason, particularly because of my immigrant background, I have reason to be very pleased to be British. I mean, one thing I didn't say in the article is that my father, in 42, he had been taken prisoner by the Russians and put into a camp. And he was given a choice between the Red Army or the British Army. I mean, it wasn't a difficult choice to make, but my God, he made the right choice. And he then, when he was demobilized, came and stayed in a camp, a rather different camp, a concentration camp in East Anglia, waiting for somebody to employ him. And along came the kosher butcher to employ him. But he was always very, very fiercely patriotic about Britain. And my mother is. And in my own way, I am. And I'm not here to go, whoa, 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 everything in Britain is terrible, everything in Germany is wonderful. But I'm afraid to say that the extent to which in the British popular imagination, obviously well-known popular cultural tropes. And I have to say sometimes in places where you would expect something more sophisticated, the mm. brittleness about British attitudes towards Germany is palpable and in itself very worrying and it's not getting much better. I was at Harvard at the Kennedy School and I remember writing an essay there based on, on of all things, what was then a famous book called The you know, Anatomy of Britain, written by Anthony Sampson, long since dead, prominent observer, journalist saying that over a period of time Britain's perception of Germany would change from being jackboots and helmets and we would all get to appreciate Deutsche Grammophon and contemporary German literature and art and architecture and so on and so forth. Anyway, if it's happening, it's happening incredibly slowly. Mm. And I think clearly the fact that at least in economic terms we've done significantly less well than they have rankles, obviously because of the war the cliche that they want the peace, what does that mean? All very complicated. But our own attitudes towards Germany reveal, of course, much more about us than they could ever tell us really about Germany. Absolutely. Where ignorance is rife, linguistic skill is minimal, and some kind of uh, kind of defence aggression, whether it's, you know, about football and penalties or about the political economy or whatever it is, or about the huge dominance as they would see it, they the Brits as we would see it, you know, in the European Union project, whatever it is, anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. Yeah, what you say conforms so closely with my experience of also how Germans see Britain. You know, there's a sense that Britain is a country that really gets Germany, but also has chosen to kind of take another direction or take another course. Yeah. And I wonder on that basis, you know, do you think that Brexit has affected that relationship and how would you say you know how how can we build a positive anglo-german relationship in an age where britain is mostly concerned with leaving the eu you know a project that is built a lot around the german economic model so this is very interesting because if you take the three largest european powers so germany france and the uk there has been a strain of school in britain forever that in some way the Germans, with a different economic model to the French, with a less dirigiste way of doing it, 
without the whole influence of Napoleonic centralization, with a greater sympathy for some kind of liberal capitalism, even if slightly more corporatist and consensual, that in some way the Germans could be separated a little bit more from the French in order that we could snuggle up together and stop grand projet of the French political mm. car. And it's been a well-known British fantasy that that could succeed. Whereas, of course, not least because we were so late into the European project, the most important thing to understand about Germany in its external relations is France. The most important thing to understand about France in its external relations is Germany. And we've never really succeeded in managing a policy that prizes them apart because it was the wrong starting point. The question is to work together with them and pull our weight properly. Blair at least had this insight. But we couldn't do it. I mean, where are we now? I mean, my, you know, Neil McGregor is a, a bit of my mentor in all, all of this and has done several programs and essays about Britain and Germany. I mean, there, there, there is a German admiration for some of the British going back to the 18th century through the Enlightenment attachment to the political philosophy of individual freedom to some notion of political liberalism and constitutionality and all of that has been an important part of German political thinking but Mm. absolutely crushed out by Prussian domination in the 19th century and then the abhorrence of what followed. Now I mean what the Germans have done is understand that tradition, and I think they still respect us for it, and at least my German professor at St. Peter's, Kevin Hilliard, certainly thinks so. And that still exists as part of the German makeup in thinking and imagining Britain. But I remember another German professor at St. Peter's saying to me after the Brexit vote, and then subsequently the year after the Brexit vote, so, you know, we always thought you were the sensible ones, and we knew that you were <laughs> a bit different. But, you know, I'm I'm trying here not to make a political comment of my own. I'm merely reporting what he said. And he said, you know, we actually think, this is a guy who made his career, brilliant by the bilingual kind of linguist, political scientist, said, uh, you know, we actually can't believe it. We always had you down as the empirical common sense people who would never do anything too extreme because you had some kind of pragmatic weather vein. Now, look, I myself could have told him that is a slight misreading of British history and don't fall into the assumption that you know it was superior moral virtue that left us without some of the revolutionary upheavals and the war defeats that happened on the continent there may be a bit of that but don't fall for it there have been moments of political violence in the uk too and so on and so forth but their view i mean all of these people's view is that in some way this british gene and i don't want to overdo it but this british gene for a pragmatic imperialic approach in which certain constitutional norms would stop extremes getting a grip had been jettisoned as they saw it. Now, I think, you know, in my more optimistic moments, it's too early to tell, but I did think the debate was ugly. I have criticisms to make on both sides of the Brexit debate, but I certainly thought that some of the things that were being said about the European Union and some of the exaggerated rhetoric and language around it was pretty worrying. And the extent to which Nigel Farage was able to get a foothold and influence the whole political culture was pretty worrying, even if I could understand what the reasons were that lay behind it. If you had one thing that you would say would boost Anglo-German relations in the next five years, what would it be? What a fantastic question. Can I give a long-term answer and work my way back to the short-term answer? Okay, I'll I'll, I'll give you 10 years. 
Well, I think with that horizon or, or slightly longer, I think a commitment to learning about Germany other than as if everybody was the Nazis. I mean, there's a famous mm. point about British history syllabus, which is it's Henry, it's, you know, it's the Tudors and the Nazis. Yeah. You know, there's more to British history than the Tudors, there's more to German history than the Nazis. And with that, I think, goes a greater commitment to at least the rudiments of uh, an effort to understand the language. I mean, look, on the political front, you know, my fingers are crossed to here that despite now the separate relationship, that when it comes to cooperation and common projects with the Germans around diplomacy, policy around the Soviet Union, indeed around China, where I think Germany has been pretty sticky and not satisfactory, Mm. and obviously around trade and talent and the trade in talent, and I define talent very broadly, that that remains intact and that some of the gains that were made by our membership of the European Union in this regard are not lost. I feel that if the flow of people and talent rise up, that is a terribly, terribly corrosive thing that would happen to us and actually to them, but I feel that we are likely to suffer probably somewhat more because our other relations will probably be drying up at the same time. As I say, we're now, you know, with 75 years on from the end of the war and these cliches about Germany just don't get erased. I mean, you would hope that Klopp and Co would find some way of... As in Jürgen Klopp. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... You know, I mean, I look, I'm a soccer fanatic and so on. And I, again, I'm aware of all the cliches that attach to this. And I don't want to say that he's a cross between Nelson Mandela and Mahatma Gandhi. But, you know, <laughs> but he's, a, he's incredibly impressive, isn't he? I mean, it's not just that, you know, Liverpool are a great team and he gives the press conferences in this vivid English and he's wildly, charismatically attractive and so on. But when he doesn't know the answer to something and when he thinks it's beyond his pay grade, yeah, he's right in there with an entirely common sense answer to questions about COVID or Donald mm. Trump or anything else. And I'm not saying that you know they're brilliant philosophical insights, but he's an admirable public figure, it seems to me, whose influence ought to and deserves to extend well beyond his football skill, which is not obviously inconsiderable. And maybe over a period of time, this will change. I mean, what one, sorry, you've given me one other thought. I've always <laughs> never fully understood the twinning arrangements that took place across Western Europe after 45 and Britain's lamentable comparative lack of interest in them. And I wonder really whether that might have helped. You, you can't go to a small town in France without seeing what it's twinned with in Germany. Don't think about Oxford and Leiden. That's not the point. Oxford is not typical of anything, so let's not no. worry about that. But loads and loads of these provincial towns. Well, you could talk about the, the war memorials. Yeah, and the war memorials. I, I, I don't know, Jeremy, if you've ever been to Verdun since, when did they redo it? About five years ago. Have you yeah. been to Verdun over the last five years? Yes, yes. It, it, <laughs> From Brussels. It's, it, tear-inducingly wonderful as not merely the most brilliant multimedia rendition of what happened in Verdun 16 and the appalling bloodshed, the use of 3D models, the video, the diaries, the home front, the experience of the women, photographs, and it's all so brilliantly done. But the extent to which everything is out on a limb to make it a Franco-German experience is tear-inducing. You know, when you think of what they had to go through to get to it, but they got to it 
And I'm not so resolutely pessimistic human being that every now and then it's not right to open, you know, the champagne or the claret or the mm. sect and say, hooray. <laughs> you know, it's fantastic. Not, not quite so well done. I've just come from Compiègne in northern France. Where, the famous where they, where they signed turned. the victory treaty. But both the armistice in, in 1918, the German surrender, and then Hitler turned up in 1940 for the French surrender. And um, that's less well done as it happens, though still you know, incredibly moving place to be. But Verdun is, is just marvellous. And as you rightly say, on the one hand, these countries enormously respect their war dead, and so they should, and so should Britain. And I don't for a moment apologise for you know, Britain having been on the right side of it, thank God, and all the rest of it. But yeah. um, we just feel that we can't join in. It's hard not to think that at least some aspects of German decentralization work better than their other insipid equivalents in the UK. And that in some way, the distribution of political power and the distribution of economic power may be somewhat related. I love London. I really, really um, often feel a great joy living in London. But there is something very, very lopsided about Britain that isn't lopsided about Germany. And of course, there's Berlin, but Berlin is already a different kettle of fish to London in that it is so much more affordable than London often appears to be for a lot of people. And you know, there's Munich and there's Frankfurt and there's Stuttgart and there's Hamburg and there's more. And there is a kind of civic pride, I think, that burns pretty brightly in Germany as I experience it and read about it. And I think Britain had that in the 19th century in high Victorian times, as it were, you know, Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham, you know, Bristol, already on the decline, but somewhat. And it's not that these cities aren't important and don't have vivid cultures under, of their own in the UK, but they've been tremendously constrained in the way that a centralised politics has worked. And I think that's one pretty important political point. The second point is very well established. It's part of the German economic model, which is the decisions around investment and short, long-term, the balance between a market. They have a functioning stock market. We shouldn't condescend them by assuming that nothing happens in Frankfurt. But nevertheless, there is clearly a, I would argue, a healthier balance between long-term decisions taken around the Mittelstand, never mind about the big multinationals, which enable Germany to have a hugely superior record in capital investment and, dare I say it, in their investment in their labour force than in Britain. Now, you know, we, it's, it's a really interesting question to the extent to which the politics leads the economics, it's a reflection of it or not, and there'll be people who know much more about it than I do. But these two attributes of the German political economy are striking and seem to me to have delivered really excellent results over a very long period. Let me let me briefly play devil's advocate, because the answer to that is usually that the UK has its own strengths, where Germany is decentralised and manufacturing based. The UK really thrives when it comes to kind of the benefits of firstly having a genuine global city, which in London the UK has, but in Berlin or Cologne or Munich or even Frankfurt, but Germany doesn't really have. But also that that, you know, Britain is very well placed to deal with sort of the service economy. Britain can do law, it can do banking, it can do media in a way that Germany can't. So, you know, I tend to obviously absolutely agree with your view of Germany. But what about the kind of counter argument? You know, what, what about the case that that Germany is really kind of rooted in these old fashioned industries and too, yeah. too sort of decentralised to kind of really 
build a strength in things that like banking or law or insurance where you need to have a global center? I think it's not a zero-sum game. There are a very limited number of global megacities. Uh, you know, Berlin may not be that, but I mean, here's a measure. If Bruce Springsteen has to go and give a concert, he won't miss out Germany, would he? And he wouldn't miss out Berlin, would he? In other words, you can have, you, you have, you have, you can have a pretty decent cultural um, and intellectual life in Germany. And I dare say, you know, we're given, and thank the Lord for it, a leg up by, you know, the English language and all of that. But okay, it may not be quite on the scale of London, but it's not a zero-sum game. We could be better at having a more equally distributed economy and uh, more cities with greater devolved power than we have at the moment without losing the skill at the things that we do well. So, you know, insurance and banking and all the rest of it. But the dominance of the city in some respects in recruiting talent as much as anything else, the extent to which that becomes the way in which you make your fortune and can afford to live at the top end of London and all the rest of it is a distracting form of magnetism. And if more talent as well as investment took place in the United Kingdom in a broader range of industries which had greater success, then I don't think any harm would come to London or even those industries in which we do well. So, I mean, this is a thing. Name, name 10, I mean, it's not a game. Don't play it. Whatever you do, don't play it. But if I, if I made you play the game, name half a dozen or 10 world-class, world-class German companies, it would take you, you know, 30 seconds. If I asked you to go through 10 world-class British companies, you're going to get there, but it's not going to be that easy. I mean, they, they exist. There are many very great enterprises and all the rest of it. But if you particularly take away the cities and the service sector, you wouldn't be left, you wouldn't be left with very much. That is a peculiar thing because the economy is not negligible and it functions and I don't want to overdo it, but it is quite a striking thing. The extent to which Britain's economy is lopsided, despite the fact that it's been policy from both major parties to try and do something about it. So, I mean, the Northern Powerhouse precedes Johnson. The Labour Party were forever scratching their head about trying to get more money and resource into the regions, but they couldn't find a way of doing it. Policy has not succeeded in decentralising economic power. The gap between the poorer parts of the UK and the richer parts of the UK has grown and grown and grown. And it's obviously part of what Brexit is all about. So you know, I don't want to run down British success stories. Mm. I'm not here to say that the magic circle of great city lawyers which sell their trade abroad should be shut down. The city should be forcibly sequestrated and handed out in mm. bite-sized parcels to the natives of you know, north of Birmingham or you know, none of that. But we have some very lopsided elements of the political economy and I don't think it served us all that well. Mark, thank you so much for this conversation and thank you for your piece. Hello, Jeremy, it's a great pleasure and uh, thank you very much for having me. And listeners can read Mark's great article at newstatesman.com slash international where we're showing it and the summer special edition is still on newsstand so please do buy it and please do subscribe at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. So all that remains is for me to say thank you Mark for that really interesting conversation i think we covered a lot of ground and kind of really got to the the core of the uk germany relationship and thank you also to nick hilton who was the producer and to all of our listeners until next week 
The New Statesman podcast is sponsored by High Speed One. Demand for sustainable travel is increasing, and at High Speed One, we believe that high speed rail is the future of international journeys. A recent study shows over a third of Londoners are expecting to travel more by train in the next five years. To meet this increasing demand, High Speed One has ambitious plans to grow by offering more services and destinations, as well as preparing St Pancras International Station for growth. Find out more about the Green Gateway to Europe at highspeed1.co.uk. That's the words high speed and the number one.co.uk. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The New Statesman podcast is sponsored by High Speed One. Demand for sustainable travel is increasing, and at High Speed One, we believe that high speed rail is the future of international journeys. A recent study shows over a third of Londoners are expecting to travel more by train in the next five years. To meet this increasing demand, High Speed One has ambitious plans to grow by offering more services and destinations as well as preparing St Pancras International Station for growth. Find out more about the Green Gateway to Europe at highspeed1.co.uk. That's the words high speed and the number one.co.uk. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>